Hello and welcome back to another episode of DF Direct Weekly, our brand new weekly show that we're testing out right here on Digital Foundry, where we cover news, we talk about what we've been working on, take questions and all kinds of other stuff, a more casual podcast-like format that's also available in video. And I mentioned podcasts because we are going to be revamping our Patreon uh, soon, which will include direct audio links to the show so you can listen to it like a proper podcast if you want, early access to it, and some other goodies that we're working on. So things are moving in the right direction. But today, uh, I am joined by three other gentlemen, uh, two that have not been on this show yet because this is only the second episode. So let's start once again with the man himself, uh, Richard Ledbetter. Hello, how are you doing there, John? I'm doing wonderful. So uh, this is episode two. It's 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 going all right. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up, we have the brand new to Digital Foundry, Audie Surly. Hey, how's it going? I think I have to do a debunk video on you, though, John, because <laughs> I was on last week's episode. Oh, that's a good point. You made that guest appearance in there. That's right. Uh, but now you're going to be here for the whole show, so we're going to torture you with all this news and technology stuff, and we're going to have you contribute to this. So I'll make sure to edit in like Steamboat <laughs> Willie just in the corner as you guys talk about graphics cards and all the other fun stuff. Exactly. <laughs> though I don't think there's too much graphics card discussion today. But uh, no, there won't be. Last but not least, though, we have the venerable Thomas Morgan. Hi from Brighton. How's it going? It's going wonderful, Tom. Glad you could be here today. Uh, this is going to be fun. We got four of us ready to go. And of course, we're starting with the news section. So, gentlemen, we have several things to discuss this week. And I think sort of topping the list that we should probably go over a little bit. Not that there's a ton to it. Uh, the Bethesda announcement. So yesterday, last night, depending on where you are, Microsoft held sort of a, a, a show, a stream, where they celebrated the the Bethesda acquisition. It was completed this week. They gave us some more details about the situation, including answering, I guess, the big question everybody had about whether or not Bethesda games would uh, be exclusive to Xbox going forward. Yes, yeah, interesting one, isn't it, John? Because it was the big question, which was fundamentally, I think Microsoft has spent seven, eight billion dollars to acquire ZeniMax in its entirety, basically all of those studios. But the big question was, are we going to still have, you know, the likes of id Software, Machine Games, Bethesda Game Studios, those titles, will they be appearing on PlayStation systems? And um, the answer is effectively. Not really, uh, from what we could understand. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, existing contractual obligations, uh, I assume stuff like Deathloop, that will all be um, actioned, as you would expect. But going forward, we should expect, uh, and this was quite specific phrasing, I thought, that mm. um, Bethesda games would only appear on um, systems that host Game Pass, which in the here and now says Xbox and PC, but also, you kind of suspect that uh, Microsoft are trying to leave the door open for other platform holders to get in on the action. Yeah, I've kind of thought that too. It feels to me like, especially something like the Switch, for instance, they have a history of putting out some titles that were previously on Xbox, PC exclusively, on the Switch as well. Uh, I guess we don't know what, you know, the business dealings back there with Nintendo, but I can imagine that Microsoft would love to get Game Pass on Switch. 
and honestly on PlayStation as well, but I'm fairly certain that's not going to happen. Yeah, I think it's basically a question of um, the competition. I mean, Microsoft uh, has a direct competitor in PlayStation with uh, PlayStation Now. I'd even say PlayStation Plus with the uh, the free games that they've been giving away recently. It's 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 seemingly everybody's upping their value proposition, but there's definitely a, um, a competition there. Whereas Nintendo, arguably, um, there isn't a Game Pass uh, competitor no. there. But on the flip side, if you have Game Pass on Switch, that's a ton of gaming hours that wouldn't be spent on games that would be bought for Switch. So whether it's actually going to happen on Switch, mm. I don't know. But it's um, I think in the here and now, at least, PC and Xbox, that's where it's at. I think um, a big part of the the Switch angle on this would be whether a lot of the titles would be even feasible, you know, running on that hardware. I mean, it'd be a limited library kind of at best support some of the future stuff that they've got kind of lined up, especially. But uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting way to sort of shepherd users away from uh, PlayStation and keep it on the Xbox platform or PC. Yeah, and I guess uh, beyond the exclusive question, they also sort of brought in some of their studios yesterday uh, to kind of showcase, you know, they showcased id Software and Machine Games. And I was really happy to see Tango Gameworks pop up there. And then even Phil had a comment about how this is like them putting another step back into Japanese development, which is an area where they've traditionally been somewhat weak. I found that to be the most interesting part, honestly, of the whole conference for me, was just seeing them actually, or at least Phil, confirmed that they are still interested in Japan because with Xbox this has always been an issue uh, throughout their entire uh, console history basically and um, I'm not really sure uh, about Tango Gameworks in terms of they don't really make video games that are angled towards Japanese sensibilities so much though so I'm not really sure how much that will help considering. I I think it's more about not just targeting Japan as an audience and more like games developed in Japan that are also for Western audiences because, you know, uh, there's a huge Western audience for Japanese-style games. Oh, absolutely. Mm. I mean, you and I are living examples of this. <laughs> but, uh, um, still, though, Xbox in general does need representation in Japan, both for international and Japanese audiences. So uh, I would be interested to see kind of like how they angle Tango moving forward. Uh, I fought Maybe that Mikami wasn't going to stay at Tango, so I'm surprised to see that like they kind of outright confirmed that he is staying. So there were some rumors that he was actually about to uh, leave, so I guess not. I mean, I, I, theoretically, Microsoft could drive a dump t- truck of, <laughs> full of money much. right up to his door and be like, uh, Shinji-san, <laughs> would you please just uh, stay with us a little while? So, at least until <laughs> yeah. we have Goof Troop 2. Exactly, stay until then. No, I'm joking. But um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the Bethesda thing. Did you guys catch anything else from that of interest? Well, I think the big question here is strategically what's in it for Microsoft? Um, I mean, if we look at the first party output from Microsoft, it hasn't quite had the same volume or the same uh, level of consistent quality as what we've seen from PlayStation. I think that's pretty clear. Um, I think my question to you guys is pretty simple. Do you think this will boost Xbox as a brand? Do you think it will make PlayStation users think about buying an Xbox or subscribing to Game Pass or moving on to PC? What's in it for Microsoft here from your perspective? I mean, 
I think it's a it's a potentially big deal for them because as you say, that's an area where they were weak. And I think this kind of comes from so the the Xbox 360 generation. That was the point where they were putting out a decent number of first party games, but as the Don Matrick years arrived and you know you had the focus on Connect and there was this it seemed like they were diverging themselves of like internal studios and projects for a while. Uh and just focusing on getting third-party support. And they were the market leader with Xbox 360, so it kind of worked. But obviously with Xbox One, those things changed, and uh, there weren't nearly as many exclusive internally developed projects coming from Microsoft suddenly. But obviously we know now that they've been out there purchasing studios, making all these acquisitions, but that stuff takes time, right? So they make these acquisitions, but you have to wait for those fruits, and that's precisely why I don't think we've seen a massive boost in any recent years for that, which means they're kind of saving it for this new console generation. Uh, so between Bethesda and all the other acquisitions they've made, I think that they're really trying to go hard on this. And to me, it feels like the point where this changed was this focus on Game Pass, where it kind of opens the doors to this stuff. Yeah, it seemed like a lot of their focus was on that incredible back catalog and then putting that on game pass and it is an amazing get for them in that in those terms so uh i think that really helps microsoft moving forward to just keep pushing game pass as the next big thing for them but um I, i'm not a huge fan of acquisitions and mergers in general in the game industry uh, over time that hasn't really worked out in everyone's favor it's true but uh we'll see how this goes um Microsoft generally does let people keep their freedom, though, I would say, when it comes to game development, from at least my my own experience as a game developer working with uh, Microsoft. They've been pretty open. So there is hope here that this actually does work out for them. I um, guess, you know, Bethesda was up, was up for sale. They wanted to sell. So, I, yes. you know, Microsoft is probably one of the better uh, uh, companies that could have acquired them versus, say, like Tencent which I'm not sure would have been a great yeah, thing. Yeah, that, uh, no offense to Tencent <laughs> at all, but uh, I don't know if that would have been a good fit. And honestly, I'm not sure if Sony would have been the perfect fit for Bethesda either. I don't think, I think they would have looking their, for that. Yeah, I think a lot of their history is kind of planted on Microsoft and then Xbox, especially that first Xbox uh, had a lot of success with uh, Bethesda. So it kind of, I think... Uh, the people who played Xbox have a good relationship to that brand. Yeah. And then also quickly, uh, Phil sort of kind of hinted at uh, the future of id tech. And there was sort of this uh, uh, discussion point around id tech engine, you know, id tech seven and whatever being used in potentially other games and something that they could use to strengthen uh, games and development for Xbox that would be, I'd be curious to see what they could do with that because it's a very strong technology foundation. Definitely. And it kind of uh, permeated throughout uh, ZeniMax Bethesda games. Uh, it was used in a number of titles and mm -hmm. um, seemed to pay off pretty well for them. So I think having that technology on board and those, that quality of staff on board, you know, the engineers behind id Tech, it's, it's simply a phenomenal acquisition for them. I think also. Um, you know, come the day when the next Elder Scrolls is out, I think there's going to be a lot of people going out there buying Xboxes. There's that. There's also Starfield, of course. Yeah. Starfield. Uh, yeah. You know, the next game from the people that brought you Skyrim and Fallout 3 through 4, you know, 4. That's a big kind of selling point. 
Um, so there is that. You know, there's a lot of good stuff there that I think can really kind of help them. Plus, you know, having the support of Microsoft on the back end, it could be potentially what they need to get those games up to speed for launch. Because traditionally, specifically from Bethesda Game Studios, uh, the launches have not been the smoothest and there have been technical issues with many of their games. And I'd like to think that after this acquisition, Microsoft would certainly pour additional resources into ensuring that those games can be the best they could be right at launch. Yeah, I think also it's a really good move for, for Bethesda because, um, to be honest, they've released a lot of great games in recent years that haven't been sales successes, uh, which yes. would be phenomenal and possibly gain a new uh, lease of life on uh, on Game Pass. And it gives them a bit more security there. You know? so, uh, not, and not just Game Pass, like, you know, I think just being exclusive sort of increases the buzz around a game. Uh, fans sort of flock to it more. We've definitely seen that on the PlayStation and Nintendo side. I think we would see it here as well. And yeah, I mean, games like Prey, Prey from 2017 was one of my favorite games of the generation by far. It's so good, but it was kind of largely ignored by uh, a lot of people. Mm. And I feel like positioning something like that as a console exclusive, you know, again, PC as well, of course, uh, could help it, I'd yeah. say. So uh, plus the Game Pass thing and... Yeah, so there's uh, there is some potential there, and it's I'm just very curious to see where it all goes. I did want to quickly just mention last week we talked about the Switch stuff, and I think uh, you know there was a lot of uh, discussion around our discussion, and I feel like you know there's we don't need to get into too much detail here today, but you know I I feel like the discussion we were kind of having was around the potential for a Switch refresh, like a theoretical Switch XL versus like say a switch pro or enhanced switch and i i really think that these can be two different products in fact i mean again all of this is just spitballing but i really foresee something where nintendo could release say in uh, a refresh model sometime in 2020 and then maybe next year they follow that up maybe following whatever new design branding they have with a more powerful switch that targets like 4k with technologies like dlss that we've been hearing about in the rumors you know stuff like that so i really think there's room for both and traditionally so first of all there's there's mike sorry there's uh nintendo's own handheld history where they've often done revisions and then major updates where it's like, okay, here's a version of this that just has like a new screen or some kind of updated thing, but then here's a whole new version of that same product. And we've also like seen... new 3DS. There's that, but also like look at the GPA SP, the AGS 101. You know, they put in the brighter screen, brand new screen. It was right. much better, but it wasn't like a huge new thing. Uh, but also Microsoft and Sony kind of dabbled in this as well. Like you look at Xbox Series not series, Xbox One S, right? That came out before the Xbox One X that added 4K upscaling and HDR, slight performance boost. I could kind of see a Switch XL falling into that sort of category, perhaps. What do you guys think? I think, uh, well, I mean, um, the reason why I still think that it's a refresh model is, first of all, the stuff that's been reverse engineered from the firmware says that there's a new Switch model in development. It's literally embedded within the firmware, new display controller. Um, I believe it also has a new dock. Um, 
how that actually affects 4K output, I don't know, but there's nothing in there that uh, indicates next-gen features such as DLSS. But on the flip side, obviously, Nintendo is always going to be working on the next generation of console hardware. And if they stick with NVIDIA, then yes, we'll get all of this loveliness that everybody wants. Uh, you know, you would expect to see a sort of Tegra version of an RTX chip, which would have DLSS. So, you know, I think we might be talking about two different things here. But the other thing, of course, is that, you know, Switch is still going great guns. Um, and I don't think it actually needs a profound revision at the moment. Maybe once um, current generation development starts to wind down, that will actually increase the likelihood of a new switch because, you know, third party ports and whatnot will become very, very difficult. But even then, you know, Nintendo doesn't have a history of, um, uh, of, of sticking with current friends. So, well, that's true, but they definitely have a history of revising their hardware exactly, a yeah. lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would expect to see a new switch of some description, maybe this year, maybe not. I mean, you know, there is still a semiconductor production shortage. Mm. That's true. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, you know, we've been covering Switch games for a while and we've seen how they work with the dynamic resolution scaling and a lot of adaptability kind of built into the games, which, you know, I do wonder if that's a mandate from, you know, Nintendo themselves to say to developers, there may be something down the line for, um, you know, hardware that could tap into what these games can do. Say if they're dynamics, you know, 720 to 1080, that'll now go to 1080 if it's running on better hardware. So, yeah, there's a lot of potential there. And, um, yeah, and obviously, as, as you guys have mentioned, it's like, it's, this does feel like the DS Lite era of this kind of, um, you know, of, of the Switch, because it's like booming success. Um, everyone's buying it. And there may be kind of a revision, kind of the XL version, but, you know, then we'll see a DSi type thing maybe a year or two later. That's my prediction anyway. While we're on Switch, uh, we should probably briefly touch on first impressions with a new conversion to the Switch, which is Apex. Uh, So this is the, I guess it's a Source Engine-based game from Respawn Entertainment. Very, uh, it's probably the best Battle Royale game out on the market. I'm sure people will disagree with that, but... I'm not, I don't play these too often, but this is the one mm. that I've actually played the most and had the most fun with. So it, it does have that sort of respawn feel to it. It's very fast, responsive, and fun, at least on its original platforms, because on Switch, uh, my first impressions are that it's perhaps not quite as optimized as I would have liked. And I guess I say that knowing that I'm sure it's very optimized as far, perhaps as far as it could go easily enough or uh with the work they've done but it's definitely not running that well no no i had about an hour or two with it last night and uh you know no comparisons yet but we'll get to that i think with a later video we'll uh give it a go because they've got a uh, cross play in this which means we can do that trick we do with uh, spectator view on both uh, like a playstation and a switch which is always fun oh yeah but uh yeah like you i just thought well i'm in two minds about it like the We've seen so many Switch games where we get to the end of an analysis and say, well, it doesn't look amazing and it's certainly compromised and it's, it's lost a bit of its identity in the process of being ported to Switch. But at the same time, 
they're wrangling with a you know uh, that Tegra X one processor, and it's it can't have been easy to get here in the first oh, place. Oh, I, I I'm sure they I'm sure of that. It's 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 a I guess for me it's the question of when when is it a bridge too far? Because yeah, this is a competitive yeah. game, right? I actually think it looks fine on the Switch. It's just that uh, the initial impressions on performance is that it's somewhat wobbly. It is, which isn't really yeah. great for a competitive multiplayer game like this that's that fast. And thankfully, you so it has crossplay, and that seems to be on by default. But you can turn it off, which I'm pretty sure is exactly what you're going to want to do. Yeah. Well, except for <laughs> for our tests, because trying to play this on the Switch at that frame rate, uh, not going to be great. It's um, yeah, I think it'll save a lot of blushes. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird, weird um setup to start. Like they have the gyro controls on automatically. Oh yeah, which I you know immediately turn that off. Um, well, a lot of people love that though, Tom. So I suppose, yeah. But it's um, yeah, the the performance side. I mean, it hits you right away when you're doing the when you're the jump master and you're going down, and it's like twenty to thirty or so. Even yeah, I know. Even the training area with like you know not that much going on there. Yeah, uh, it starts to dip right away, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I agree with what you say about uh, image quality it is actually, you know, serviceable. I think for a game yeah. like this, they're they're kind of working to keep the logic of the game running behind the scenes. You know, that huge field of view uh, to stay competitive with the other platforms. Otherwise, if you can't see as far as another platform, you're at an inherent disadvantage. Exactly. But they they can't. They can only go so so far with the number of pixels that that small machine can push. And I did a little quick uh, test on this and it seems a lot of them come down to um, like 720p in native res. Even, you know, when pushed, it seems like uh, 720p is a very common number on that game. It but, is. But it is, that's still quite low compared to, you know, the other... Exactly. The other machines, so, yeah. I guess the other thing that's interesting is you look at this. This, is a, this has been a crazy year in terms of uh long-term engines finally arriving on switch in some capacity like obviously this game was developed sort of like their own version of the source engine at its base but then ea also has brought frostbite over to the switch this year uh they're, they're doing that um there is the uh the re engine from capcom oh, which gosh, yeah. after years of not being on switch you know they tried that like uh what was it, it was the streaming version of re7 which, you know, whatever, not that great, but interesting. But it's finally here as well. So I feel like the Switch the Switch is finally, like all this development that had been done to get these engines on the Switch is finally coming to fruition, which is kind of neat to see. Hmm. I guess the next topic actually is uh, revolves around kind of the opposite of playing Apex on Switch. It's around high frame rates, specifically 120 hertz. Now, this is something that is near and dear to my heart these days. I really love these super high frame rates. Uh, it's been possible on the PC for a while, but consoles are finally making this a reality. We saw uh, a number of games actually supporting 120 hertz output on these new machines. My favorite of which has to be Dirt 5, I think, which just feels awesome. Although Ori, Ori as well. Ori. Uh, that's amazing at 120 hertz. But there's two games out this week are that are getting updated to support 120 hertz uh samurai showdown and overwatch and i haven't had so let's start let's start with overwatch actually because i think that's right. probably this is the bigger title 
and uh, it's kind of big news that this is getting in 120 hertz support. So, have any of you guys actually tried this yet? Uh, yeah, I have. I, I gave it a again, like uh, of an afternoon, had about an hour or two with. Uh, it's the Series S and X versions. There's no PS5 120 hertz support. As oh yet. wait, so is this backwards compatibility? What should I say? Plus, so to speak, or yeah, is this a native it's, app? It's. Uh, I didn't it's, check this. It's but... difficult to say on Xbox, isn't it? Because it's just yeah, flagged right. under smart delivery. Whereas on PlayStation Five, you have specific apps labeled as PlayStation Four and PlayStation Five, and if it's labeled as PlayStation Five. It's a PlayStation 5 app, whereas on Xbox, yep. everything is under the smart delivery umbrella. So That's right. Um, yeah, it's trickier. That's kind of this dividing line on the PlayStation side is why you don't have, I don't think, Overwatch at 120 hertz, and you don't have Warzone at 120 hertz, which is actually the best battle royale there, John, just saying. Hashtag just oh. saying. <laughs> Warzone is amazing, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think... Um, there's a, a fluid approach on Xbox, which has paid off here. You know, they they need to go for like a milestone release on PlayStation to get that update in there. But uh, with this, it feels like developers can just add what they need as and when, uh, much like a PC release almost. And uh, yeah, for, for the um, Overwatch uh, release, uh, you know, the uh, updates for Series S and X, you've got three modes, so 120 hertz uh, at 1080p on the uh, Series X. And then uh, at the other end of the scale is a 4K60 uh, mode, which, uh, and, you know, I, I had a little look at both and they work just as you'd hope. Like there's nothing <laughs> controversial about either of them. They work beautifully. So is it, it seems stable so. then? Is, is it actually stable? Yeah, I had about three games at 120 FPS and uh, just, yeah, pretty much perfect. There were like maybe a couple of five FPS dips with that tearing is on xbox but yeah it's, it's absolutely you know really really well done and the 4k mode um you know on one x they had a dynamic scaler right. uh, and it was never actually 4k this time it's actually 4k pretty much cool constantly so yeah they've done really I think, well i think really 120 hertz is something that's uh i really hope that developers continue to push for going this generation but it's tough because you're hitting you have your target is so low uh, in terms of you need to get each frame out there so fast that it's really brutal to do even on these consoles especially mm. to do it consistently so i am a little concerned that as we get further into this generation we'll perhaps see less of it but at the same time if 120 hertz becomes the new 60 and 60 kind of becomes the default you know it's hard to complain about that either so uh we'll see how that goes but i guess so Samurai Showdown is one I haven't had a chance to try it yet, and we might have to talk about that in the future, but that's a really excellent fighting game, fantastic iteration, mm. Samurai Showdown. Uh, not the first time they've done 3D in Samurai Showdown, but it's probably the best attempt at it yet in terms I of mean, visual style. This was a fantastic return of form for SNK when it came out, and I really enjoyed it. As you know, John, I play mostly fighting games when I have some spare time. I when i used to have it at least and uh the uh i've actually haven't played a 120 hertz uh fighting game yet and i'm very curious how this would work because uh samurai showdown on at least the pro ps4 pro uh i still struggled a bit with latency uh with samurai showdown so i'm wondering if 
this new patch then would uh, i wonder how it would feel in I, comparison i'm actually curious about for fighting games specifically how this is going to impact uh playing competitive multiplayer online for instance yeah. and i don't think it's a huge deal because there's going to be other late latency issues along the along the chain you know from the display mm, sure. to network latency there's there's lots of different factors there but i do think it'd be interesting to it should feel a lot better and this is i think 120 hertz is such a good thing for fighting games in general i guess and i do think it would still i don't i don't know i mean i i don't know enough about the hardcore fighting game community to say whether or not going to a double the frame rate would actually yeah. impact the I mean, timing of the moves i mean i'm a huge fan of just about every fighter i can get my hands on um i've not gone as hardcore as like learning like frame inputs on like uh combos but it is uh wait you're, you're a big fan of war gods um, <laughs> no <laughs> all right i have played it i have played it and it was it was an interesting time <laughs> i'll tell you what though that rise of the robots awesome <laughs> not everyone <laughs> uh, but um yeah i mean it is it, it's interesting to see that you know fighting games have their origins essentially in the arcades where 60 hertz was the standard and so this if it takes if it really takes flight and i don't imagine it will with um a majority of fighting games i mean guilty gear strive you know it is like a 60 fps game and that's kind mm. of where the the ceiling is, I think, in terms of what that's going for, but if it if it does take off for older games, I think uh, it, it will change the way uh, the competitive scene views how to build combos and the the timings on these things will kind of shift. Um, in I think it's uh, I think it's an interesting uh, development, and I actually think that uh, in terms of CPU load, CPU logic, it's probably quite low on a fighting game compared to something like Warzone or um, yep. uh, you know those type of massive sprawling battle royales and you know Dirt Five, all of those car physics. I'd imagine that the CPU burden of a fighting game is probably a lot lower, so therefore it becomes a question of GPU lower the resolution, you're good to go um, if it's a 3D uh, fighting game. So I think there is potential here, and I'm kind of interested in seeing whether anyone's going to push it further or whether it will introduce a kind of disparity in the gameplay experience that will uh, that will not go down well with the hardcore fighting community. See, I kind of feel like somebody needs to take a chance on making like a new arcade iteration of a fighting game that targets 120 hertz in the arcade and makes it standard. Like, uh, I'm looking at you, Sega. It's time for more Virtua Fighter. You know, Vir- <laughs> I, I was going to say, I would think that like vir- a new Virtua Fighter or a new Tekken would be the best kind of gen- guinea yeah. pig for a 120 hertz 120. Uh, standard. Would love to see it. This, for fighting games, in order for them, or fighting game fans, for in order for them to adopt it, I think you really have to do a gorgeous, very fluid-looking 3D fighting game. I think 2D, uh, I mean, it could definitely work. I think that's so ingrained in what Tom was saying in that arcade era, 60 hertz, pixel precise frame uh, count to gameplay. So I don't think 120 hertz is the way to go there just now. No. Yeah, you you might be right. But, but anyway, I hope for a bright future for 120 hertz. And that's something uh, we will continue to examine and discuss as more games launch with this feature. That's the hope. There is, on on the flip side of frame rate, 
there's resolution. And this is something, uh, there was a little bit of a discussion recently on Twitter about this, wasn't there, Rich? Yeah, essentially the question of whether there's too much of a focus on resolution in our coverage. And uh, I actually think it's a really, you know, I, I actually take that criticism on board because um, if we think about the way resolution actually presents on screen these days in the year of temporal, in the era of temporal accumulation, there isn't a linear, I don't think there ever was, but certainly not these days, there's not a linear relationship between resolution and image quality. So, no. you know, and especially when you're in a living room environment where you're sitting quite a way back from the screen, that's kind of something else that we need to factor in. I think that's why um, checkerboarding on the first party PS4 Pro games in particular kind of worked really well. You got the 4K hit and yet the, you know, it was all done on a four teraflop GPU. Question is whether these metrics matter. And I think it was based on um, the Outriders video that you did, Tom. Now, here's the thing. Um, in terms of Outriders, there was actually a relationship, I think, between the resolution and the performance difficulties or the performance drops, rather, that were seen in uh, mm -hmm. the Xbox versions. So I do think the data is valid on that. Um, but I do question the concept of this uh, relationship between image quality and pixel counts. And, and also when we talk about DRS windows and you know lowest bounds, you're not often at the lowest bounds. So yeah, uh, yeah that's I the mean, thing is it's, it's the average is more important than the lowest bounds. The lowest bounds is just a little factoid that's interesting. But the problem is people often take that and run with it and say, oh, this game is this resolution. And that's just not true. I mean, if you mm. go back to the beginning of DRS, I think the first time I saw it in the modern era was on uh, Wipeout on the PlayStation 3. It had a quite a naive uh, horizontal scaler. Mm. It was a 1080p game, but you could see when it was at the lowest bounds because there was, you know, aliasing artifacts, sawtooth edges and whatnot. And uh, then you could see, hey, this is a really interesting trick. Um, not quite as successful as, uh, you know, native resolution. Um, in mimicking native resolution. But when you look at the games of today, um, it's actually really difficult to, to kind of differentiate uh, the various uh, different yes. dynamic resolutions we see. So yeah. that's something actually, I, I kind of wanted to, to touch on this because one of the questions I always see is, you guys used to place importance on resolution and now you're doing less so. Why is that? And this is, this is something that's really interesting to think about. And it kind of ties into the history of both displays and the, the pixel counts themselves. Like, you know, be, before Digital Foundry, there was CRTs. I still use CRTs. They're great. Uh, but the way they handle resolution is fundamentally different than like a flat panel display. And resolution just didn't really matter back then. Like you could have 320 by 240 pixels and it looks glorious on a, on a CRT. And the art was made for this. But once I think pixel count only really became uh, important once we made the jump to flat panels in general, like LCDs, plasma and the like. And the re so when Digital Foundry was first founded before any of us were a member of it, Richard had just kind of started this thing off. Uh, pixel counts mattered a lot. And I'll tell you, it's because of two things. First of all, uh, when you're deep. It's the it's the pixel the, the number of pixels in general was much 
much lower, right? So you're dealing with like 720p usually at the most. So the difference between like 720p and like 600p was was pretty significant. Like it's it's fewer pixels than say like 4K versus 1800p, but in terms of the perceptual difference, it's massive. This ties into two other things then, the anti-aliasing itself. Besides MSAA, which was generally too expensive, uh, anti-aliasing was really in its infancy back then. It didn't handle like temporal aspects of the of the rendering. It, you get a lot of shimmering and noise on that as well. So it just wasn't up to the task of dealing with low pixel counts, which is part of the reasons why Switch games tend to be okay with also low pixel counts because they're using these modern techniques. And then on top of that, you have the screens themselves, which if you if you have like a lower resolution flat panel display and the, the output of the game doesn't match the pixel grid on the display, uh, it becomes noticeable. So it's especially bad when you have fewer overall pixels and you can go all the way back to like a handheld like you try to you try to play like an emulated game on like an original ds and it doesn't match the resolution it looks horrendous and that's that's the problem here it's like you have a 768p screen which by the way there were almost no actual 720p displays back then so everything was always scaled then when you add in so you're scaling from 720 to 768p but then the game is under 720p you have all this upscale blur, these nasty upscaled pixels that are just blurred to heck. There's not, the anti-aliasing can't keep up and it just looks bad. So that's why during the PlayStation 3 and 360 era, it mattered a ton. Then we get to Xbox One and PS4. And for the first time, we were actually getting games that could match the pixel resolution of most flat panels. Most people were starting to use 1080p at that point. So having a game get the native resolution of that was actually pretty important. When you dropped under that that resolution, it was noticeable. But it was, I'd say, less of a problem than it was during the prior era. Anti-aliasing was starting to improve, though it was slow at first. Uh, and I don't think that a 900p game necessarily looks bad, but a 1080p game definitely, you can see the difference still. Sure. But once we get to 4K from a normal viewing distance in the living room, uh, and then you add in all these new anti-aliasing techniques, it becomes so much more difficult to actually perceive pixel differences to the point where, honestly, from my viewing position, something like 1800p versus native 4K, I can't, I can't actually see the difference during normal gameplay from my seating position. To the fact that, you know, when you when we were playing PS3 games, I could see this difference just playing the game and it was distracting. Now to see the difference, I actually have to capture the file, bring it over to the PC, go through frame by frame and actually compare and contrast and like look for tricks and, you know, frame cuts and all this stuff. Mm. I mean, if you put your face up to the 4K screen, you can actually see that, OK, maybe it doesn't completely align to the pixel grid, but from the way you would normally play uh, it's very hard to see, and it's just, that's why it's changed. It's because the technology has changed. Yeah. So we have changed with the technology, and now pixel counts just aren't as important anymore. And this is due both to the displays, but also the hard work of developers that have poured so much R&D effort into essentially conquering shimmering, right? Like, that's yeah. that's where this is all about. This is about getting rid of that noise, the, the shimmering artifacts you get when the image moves around, and that's what brings us closer to pre-rendered visuals, and we're getting really close to it now, I think. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. we we never. I mean, we covered a, a game recently, a Mortal Shell, uh, not Mortal yeah. Coil. <laughs> we <laughs> and yeah, that is a classic case. Like uh, we were discussing then that uh, you know it's a eighteen hundred p targeting game on a Series X, and uh, the Series S version runs significantly lower in terms of uh, what it's doing. You know, it's got a dynamic res scaler and it's reconstructing to eighteen hundred p. But when you put them side by side, you know, even I was completely flummoxed by just how similar they both looked. I mean, one's running at exactly. 1350p and the other's at native 1800p. Couldn't really make uh, heads or tails of it. And, you know, um, definitely when we're talking dynamic res uh, measurements at DF, uh, I agree that there's... Um, it's a it's a bit of a tricky tricky one to kind of put forward and show as a you know absolute absolutely absolute range because obviously you're, you yeah. can show the upper bounds easy enough just look at the sky and uh, get your pixel test there and you can you can have a very very good shot at getting your lower bounds just find a stressful scene and there it is mm-hmm. usually. But Especially average, with alpha effects on screen, you yeah. know, loaded up with particles and combat, and it does tend to drop it. Yeah, but the the average that's that's uh, that's a real estimate. That that's the that's the magic word, Tom. This is this is why I've been trying to focus more on average resolution when discussing this stuff because uh, whenever we present, you know, like the lowest pixel counts, again, people often take that away and they run with it, and it's uh, it's used in ways that are you know, questionable sometimes. And I really don't think that that's the most important takeaway here. And I really want to find ways to, to discuss image quality in a new way, because I do think it's different than it, than it was in the past. And it's not just about resolution. It's about the overall image quality that you get. And uh, that's something I think we're still kind of exploring ways to, to, to talk about it in a way where somebody can like get an idea of how version A compares to version B, uh, but holistically instead of just pixel count. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting because it's all comes down to clarity, i.e., you know, when you do have a higher resolution, you have um, there's there is extra detail, but it presents as extra clarity almost, you know, almost like focus in a way. And then there's temporal stability. This is the big deal. You know, previously in the Xbox One, PS4 era, 900p without TAA, there'd be quite a lot of sparkly artifacts uh, from one frame to the next. Mm -hmm. But temporal accumulation has kind of solved that now. And this is the other thing to bear in mind. You know, we can do a pixel count and the um, result may be, you know, native in quotes, 1440p. But... Temporal accumulation means that it will be taking information from prior frames, which may have mm-hmm. been rendered at a lower native resolution or a higher native resolution. And then all of that information is combined into the current frame. So, yeah, it is really difficult. And I kind of would really like to have a way to easily visualize clarity uh, because that is basically the only gain you really get from higher native resolution in the current era. That's that's it. And, you know, it's kind of manifests almost like, you know, the Series X uh, version is clearer than the Series S version. You know, yeah, I think the other thing, though, is, you know, going back to Outriders and I think Mortal Shell is that 
these numbers are kind of useful in that they help to explain performance differentials. You can say, well, you know, based on what we know of the Series S hardware and the resolution it's running at here, maybe the resolution is too high and that's why we're getting these performance drops. But at the same time, you know, I'm kind of thinking maybe we should be leaning more on dynamic resolution to, uh, you know, to, to basically keep performance higher because certainly in the case of Unreal Engine, it does a really good job. I think the problem is when you go too low on the resolution, and um, it's a problem that we saw on the last gen machines, and it's a problem that you see on Switch, where if the res if the core resolution is too low, TAA temporal accumulation, it's not going to save you. It's just going to look really blurry. But it's like a uh, Arc Survival Evolved on the Switch, <laughs> which goes to almost like Mega Drive resolution, <laughs> which looks great on a CRT. The Mega Drive does, but with the when you add temporal <laughs> accumulation blur to the Switch output that's already upscaled. It's just soup. But if you, you, if you go back yeah. to uh, the big uh, discussion point at the end of last year, which was AC Valhalla, you know, oh, yeah. basically, I think Ubisoft made the right call on the Xbox Series X version. They reduced the lower bounds and you got a much more stable experience and you didn't That's really the notice the lower bounds had been changed. It, you know, we had to wade in there and, explained how, and explain how it worked. And in explaining how it worked... It actually brought a lot of flack down on the developer, which you know is is kind of insane. And I you agree. know they should have done the same thing on the on the PlayStation Five version. They'd have had nothing to lose, really. So um, I mean that that's the key: is performance drops are infinitely more noticeable exactly. than a slip in dynamic resolution scaling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think we can leave it there. There's going to be a lot more examples of this, and I would you know in an ideal world. I would prefer to just completely eliminate pixel count numbers and replace it with some kind of index of image quality that is related to clarity. But at yep. the same time, you know, going back to Outriders, going back to Mortal Shell, you know, we, we, we have a kind of explanation for performance drops uh, when the DRS windows seem to be out of step with the capabilities of the hardware. So those figures are still relevant. Yeah, so we'll still we'll still be doing those figures for that reason because but, there you know, there is a purpose to it. Something else that we've got to get out there is how long these measurements take and how annoying it is and how <laughs> and it can know, be. Basically, I mean, I want the the, the viewers out there and the, the listeners out there to realize that this stuff takes a really long time to hammer down. It's not 100% accurate. It can't be because you can't measure every single scene. It's a kind of best guess. And um, it delays the content. You know, it takes yeah, time that, to I mean, do this you, stuff. You literally go through frame by frame by frame and look at it. And that's why sometimes, you know, different people have different findings because if you just happen to find one frame that's a little bit lower, because this stuff is scaling all over the place. And you just go through it with a comb, basically, and find your examples and count them out. And, you know, it takes it takes time. It's, uh, it's mm. a better part of an afternoon yeah. to hash this stuff out. And at the I end know. of it, you have a number that may not even be related to in any kind of way to the to the actual quality of the presentation you're getting. Precisely. Mm. So that kind of wraps up the main news section. But we have to throw in this. This, this is going to become, I guess hopefully a normal thing but i want to throw in the retro corner as i call it where we discuss some announcements that are applicable to retro gaming fans as well as discuss some of maybe our new 
uh, gadgets or things that we've been messing with. So case in point, the first thing I wanted to mention actually is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, which was announced this week from Tribute Games and .emu. Uh, this looks phenomenal, I think. This looks uh, like a dream come true. I've actually been aware of this game for a little bit uh, via some sources. And I mean, uh, I'm very well versed in TMNT games, as you know, John. I did this oh, yeah. uh, huge deep dive into every game made, and I've had several meetings with Nickelodeon over the years and all these fun things related to Turtles. And the last 10 years especially has been kind of rough for those games, uh, from oh, yeah. the Activision games like Out of the Shadows and the even Platinum games sort of you know, bungled uh, their attempt. It's their worst is, game, uh, I think, for me uh, at least. quite surprising because, uh, I mean, it's really, as a genre, it's really a game that just is all about unity. It's all about that unit of the brothers so it's all about co-op non-stop action and you know of course in this case being based on the 1987 cartoon finally uh it's all about these bright colors and great music as well and this seems to bring everything back together it's uh, sprite based yep. uh very much based on uh tmt the arcade game uh even more so i would say that than turtles in time but it mm -hmm. does also include a lot of influences from turtles in time including throwing the foot soldier to the screen yeah, which uh, the uh, somewhat uh, mislabeled mode seven effect—it's actually a sprite. It's not a, a scaled sprite, but uh, yeah, it looks incredible. Uh, you can see on the trailer that like uh, even all the turtles have individual animations for yeah. the walking animation running. It looks super detailed, which is something that wasn't really possible back in the day, but now no, it can be done. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this looks like it's everything a Turtles game finally should be. And there has been good Turtles games. I mean, Danger of the Ooze from Way Forward uh, was actually quite decent. And um, it's, it's been, been a while, though. Raw Thrills, did they beat them up in the arcades, which you can probably play at Chuck E. Cheese still to this day. If it's open. Uh, if it's open <laughs> in your town, go check. Uh, but that was okay, too. It's a little bit of a shame that never came out, because that was based on the uh, 2013 CGI cartoon, which I think is the best cartoon, actually, of Turtles. Um, th but yeah, this looks great. I think, Audi, this is going to warrant a proper DF Retro deep dive uh, prior oh, to release. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some DF Retro plans in the works for Turtles, and, of course, a review of this game. If, uh, I I'll probably jump into your video for that when that comes out. Oh, yeah, uh, most certainly. But uh, also, if, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the actual... And this has been a problem for Turtles game in the past, is that the music, the theme song, was done by Chuck Lore, who did, like, mm -hmm. Two and a Half Men and all these uh, comedy shows. And he actually wrote the original uh, cartoon theme. And until uh, Nickelodeon bought the rights, they couldn't use it, which you remember on those... Uh, 2003 cartoon games when you unlock turtles in time and whatnot they changed the music they changed the music because it was based on that and then of course reshelled which uh, i can tell you stories for days about that game uh but that's for another day uh but that also changed the music because of that uh property issue or licensing issue but that's now all taken care of and the theme song for this trailer was sung by Mac mike Patton. yeah that was, was of course uh, most famous for doing uh spencer in bionic commando the reboot that's right didn't I he do he's known uh, for anything else didn't he do the voice of the creature in the darkness 
Yeah. From Starbreeze. He, he has a very strange uh, video game legacy, that man, as well as, <laughs> of course, an incredible musical legacy. Yes, of so, course. But I couldn't believe it when I heard the vocals and recognized it was Mike Patton singing the Ninja Turtles theme song. So strange to hear. But we are in a strange timeline. But either way, it's looking cool. There will definitely be more turtle stuff coming up because you and I, we love it. It's great stuff. So just, uh, just to cut in here quickly, isn't this game being developed? I mean, I read this online, so it might not be true. Isn't it being developed by the guys who did Streets of Rage 4? Uh, so it's related to them, but the actual development is being done by um, Tribute, Tribute Games, Games for them. Right, okay. Right, so .emu, uh, they basically helped, helped publish and make Streets of Rage 4, but that was done over in Montreal. I believe with those guys and also uh in france as well so it's kind of a partnership thing again okay. so but they obviously had good luck with streets of rage 4 in terms of the impact it made so it makes a lot of sense to try their hand at another brawler like this and bringing back turtles which i think is probably next to streets of rage the series that people have the most fondest for in the I would genre say, yeah so i would say this is a logical next step and um you know, when Streets of Rage 4 came out, the success of it, we always hoped, would bring back the brawlers, the classic yep. brawlers, the belt scrollers, whatever you want to call it. And now we're seeing Turtles come back in the yep. perfect fashion. Absolutely. And what do you think is next, though? What's the next brawler that you would want to see? I don't know. Maybe Capcom will be like, all right, it's time for the actual final fight. I was going to say, I would like a new final fight as well. <laughs> we'll see, though. We'll see. Would go uh, next camp? Yes. Well, yeah. Did you play that uh, reboot they did on the 360, though? I did. You weren't happy with I that? I did the live stream on that. That was uh, with the developers. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about... Um, uh, wait, was there was there multiple ones? <laughs> yeah, there, there has been multiple, yes. Not the one you live streamed. Okay, no, there was the other one. Yeah, there's, there's been several. Man, losing track it's like of Like Dra Dragon Rider or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that's or the one. Beast Rider? Yeah, that one. Mm. That one was... Uh, not the best. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about briefly from personally is, uh, well, uh, actually, this. Which is, this is a Neo Geo Pocket Color. <laughs> I love this system. I put a new screen in it. So I just wanted to highlight this for people that might be interested. Essentially, I pulled this, I got the screen from Alibaba. It was like 47 euros. It's a, an IPS LCD panel, and it has the re retro pixel function, uh, which essentially it's a high enough resolution panel that they're able to draw these like thin black lines between all of the virtual like game pixels. And so when you compare this to an original LCD from one of these systems, it basically looks identical. So you get the, the perfect looking pixel scaling. The pixels look just as they did before. That's the key. But of course you get, you know, modern backlight, uh, you, you know, smooth motion, everything looks great. It's a much, much nicer looking screen uh, and it's bright, which is key. What's interesting about this mod is it has these two little wires running off with these touch sensors. You actually install it under the plastic here at the top. And because it's capacitive, uh, you essentially control it just by tapping the case. So you tap the one to change the color scheme or turn on retro pixel mode. You tap the other to change the brightness. So it's like this real... It's a really uh, beautifully designed mod that slips in there. And they even include a new glass lens for the front because the screen itself is bigger than the original. 
So you get slightly more visible area, which is important because the previous mods for this thing uh, used much smaller screens, and those were not great. So in comparison, this is a huge step in the right direction. And I think they also... So I, I have one of these screens for the Game Boy DMG. They also do Retro Pixel for, I think, Game Boy Color and maybe even the Wonder Swan. So definitely look those up if you're into playing classic handhelds and want a really nice screen upgrade for it. And Neo Geo Pocket has seen a bit of a resurgence because, like, they've been re-releasing those games on Switch recently. That's right. And whatnot. And, I mean, it's a great library. It's not huge, uh, but it's quite good. So There's some bangers on there. You got Sonic the Hedgehogs on there. Sonic Pocket Adventure. It's really solid. So, so. so this is the one that's got Card Fighter Clash, right? It does, yeah. yeah right, that was this pretty much the, the only game I played on mine, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, that was a popular one. Yeah, that that's so. the same system though. It it even has a uh, uh, you can use a link cable to connect it to the Dreamcast. Oh wow! So there's, there's synergy there. Before Nintendo did that with the GBA, you could buy that mm-hmm. cable to connect your NGPC to the Dreamcast. So, uh, gr- plus even Neo Turf Masters on that. I thing. have Neo Turf Masters for this. That's great. And this Clicky Stick man, this is the best. This is the best thing that was ever put onto a handheld device. It's this little, it's just like the Neo Geo CD where it's a micro switch based joystick that's like sort of recessed in, in this little uh, here. And it just, it feels you so good. You need to put that it's up so to the microphone good. and do like ASMR with the micro switch. And uh, whisper, whisper as you do it, you know, just yeah. uh, Neo, Neo Geo pocket color. Say dirty things about the Neo Geo, John. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. That's so. That's good stuff. Um, <laughs> That'll be a Patreon bonus. Uh, <laughs> Patreon bonus. Uh, like three dirty talking Neo. Three hours of it. Oh yes. <laughs> um, before we move on to the next section, Audie, did you want to quickly mention something about the Tokyo Game Music Show report? Yeah, just quickly note because I don't think many people are aware of it, and it would be fun to kind of point out that the last uh, weekend on the sixth of March there was the Tokyo Game Music Show. And it's a show that I've been having a lot of fun with in the past. It's actually quite uh, relatively new, but it is a show where both fans and industry legends of video music come together. So you can find like uh, Furukawa Motoaki, who did Gradius uh, 2, and oh, yeah. Police Knots and Snatcher, he's always there. Uh, Hayama Koji, who did Joaniki, is usually there. Uh, I have to, of course, point him out. The king but, of uh, game music. The king of game music, the world champion of game music. That's right. And uh, it's a really fun event because unlike, for example, something like MAGFest, which is a celebration of game music in the U.S., which I used to go to, uh, this is more like a kind of industry-led event where you can buy these new projects from famous composers in Japan, you can meet with them, of course, but you can also sell your own uh, what's primarily known as doujin music, which is kind of fan Mm -hmm. arrangements and whatnot. So you kind of have this merger of these things. And there were a couple of cool releases, so just to point them out, there was, of course, uh, from our dear friend, Yona Okeishi, who you and I uh, did a lot of coverage on this winter because That's of true. Mad Stalker, yep. uh, part of your game of the year. Uh, he actually put together a CD called FM Vertex, which brings together all these video composers like Hiro Kawaguchi, did Outrun and Space Harrier and Afterburner, and, uh, of course, himself, Abo Takeshi, who did Steins Gate, and uh, um, Takamiryu, all these kind of famous names in Japanese video music. And they all came together to make an original album with FM Synth. So it's basically this love letter to arcade music and Mega Drive, all that kind of fun stuff. And uh, they sent me uh, the CD and it sounds incredible. I've never heard 
anything as cool as this. And I, I of course, love when oh, I need the to original composers come back and work on the old hardware. So this is a really cool uh, celebration. And they did note that actually they are selling the album now and uh, they ship internationally at some places. They didn't tell me where, but uh, if you look for FM Vertex, I'm sure you can find it. And if you're into video music, that's one right. to really pick up. And cool. uh, our friends at Suntada also uh, released an album, which I think you would find kind of cool because they released a CD called uh, Darius Mega World, I think, or MD oh, Mega World, yeah. which uh combines the soundtracks for the darius sega genesis mini version and the new cartridge version and there's been some confusion regarding what that actually means but basically uh when or in the interim where they were getting the game from the mini over to a cartridge uh, taito and m2 teamed up to clean up the sound driver for that conversion which you know was originally a fan conversion and uh they included like new FM sound effects and they actually fixed the notation of the music. So on that CD, you get both the Mega Drive mini version and the cartridge version soundtracks on one CD, which is kind of cool. That is super considering cool. Considering you can compare them. And uh, I think that cartridge version is now out. I think it is. You, I have a copy. Yeah, you have it, right? Yeah. 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 So if you listen closely, you'll notice that the notation of the music is uh, vastly improved, actually. That's great. And uh, it was pretty cool that they put out a CD based on that. All right. So that's, uh, that's good stuff, man. Uh, yeah. And that brings us to the end of the retro corner. Last week, we talked about what we had been working on during that week. It's, it's kind of been kind of... Uh, We've been working on a lot of stuff this week, but a lot of it we can't actually talk about yet. I mean, I did Crash Bandicoot 4 on PS5 and Switch. Uh, go check out that video. I mean, the findings were fairly predictable, but turned out to be a pretty good port on both. And then I'm working on some other stuff that can't really say yet. So what about you guys? Anything you wanted to pop in before we jump over to Q&A? Uh, not really. I think uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming. It's been a bit of a quiet week. I uh, missed a couple of upload slots earlier this week, um, or, or last week by the time most people will get to see this. Um, but things are, are ticking along nicely, and uh, hopefully by the time you watch this, we'd have seen some uh, a couple of the, the fruits of those labours. But I think maybe we should uh, move straight on to uh, questions from our supporter program community. And uh, we're going to kick off with an interesting one from Crazy Frog. Uh, I'm not going to be doing oh, any no. crazy frog name. impersonations. <laughs> I mean, I hesitate to bring up the name, but his name is Crazy Frog. And uh, yeah, basically he said uh, a while back, you said, you being me, uh, because I did say this on the Discord, uh, that there won't be a PlayStation 5 Pro. Maybe you can expound on that. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, bonus points for the word expound. And also, bonus <laughs> points to you, uh, Aldi, for um, bungling, which you, which you said earlier, which I think is a word that we don't use enough. But uh, oh yeah, but, I'm bringing it back, baby. <laughs> to to get back to the question, uh, you said there wouldn't be a PS5 Pro, and why is that? Uh, I, How could you? Well, well, the reason why there was a PlayStation 4 Pro was essentially because there was. A sea change in display technology. There was going to be uh, big volume shipments of 4K displays. HDR was becoming a thing. There was a reason to have a mid-generation refresh. 
Um, and it was a good reason. And at the same time, you got a bunch of other benefits. Like uh, I think in its towards its latter days, a lot of um, PlayStation 4 Pro releases actually ended up being really good 1080p releases. So there was a bit of a bonus there from extra horsepower on traditional displays. But I don't think that alone would have generated, uh, would have would have necessitated a whole new console. Um, in terms of why I didn't think there would be a PlayStation 5 Pro, simply because uh, the amount of money it costs to make the PlayStation 5 um, in the here and now is such that uh, the platform holders are going to be recouping that uh, investment across the generation. Um, I don't think 8K uh, displays are going to be as much of a driving factor in terms of um, the need yeah. to create a new console. And, um, though, though, Rich, you say that, and you're probably right, but the thing about that that I've been thinking about is the rise of machine learning image quality enhancements like DLSS. Yes. Uh, conceivably, if AMD were to devise a solution that was similarly effective, and 8K starts to become more common, which I kind of hope it doesn't right now because I don't think it's that necessary, but let's say it is. I could see a case being made where they say, okay, well, we're going to target 8K uh, and we're going to use machine learning to get there. And yeah. I think you could have like something that would look pretty respectable. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my next point, which is... Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, there is possibly a way forward. I mean... Um, well, you know, you you and I, John, we were both at Microsoft when Andrew Goosen, the chief architect of Xbox, basically told us that we're getting the pro console and the mass market console at the beginning of the generation rather than staggering them. And the reason he gave was that um, the cost per transistor in terms of making a microprocessor is um, is staying the same. So you can't actually introduce new logic without making an expensive console even more expensive. But at the same time, DLSS has been a bit of a game changer and you, know, you won't need to double or triple the size of your GPU to accommodate an 8K screen. So that is a potential way forward you know, to have uh, an extension of the current machine learning facilities that are within the next generation Xbox um, and use that to you know, move up to 8K resolution. That's very much a potential thing because I would say that the machine learning features of the next generation machines are kind of um, underdeveloped compared to RTX on the PC side. And that's why we've got DLSS there. And that's why we've got this sort of catch up happening on the AMD side. So maybe that is a way forward. Maybe there would be a way to increase performance or to increase resolution by leaning more into machine learning, which wouldn't have a huge impact on uh, die area. So that is a potential way forward, but we do need to keep an eye on um, the, the sheer cost of, of these machines because it's already onerous and I can't see it being that much cheaper a few years down the road. I mean, if you look back, we got PlayStation 4 in 2013 and the Pro in 2060, 16, yeah. three year difference. You know, that's not actually that long. So yeah, um, I have do, expounded. Do you think we're actually going to see 8K on the PS5, which is, it's on the box <laughs> and they've said support is coming. Do you think we'll actually see anything 8K uh, on maybe, the PS5 as it Maybe now. I have had a sneak peek at the Sony roadmap on the SDK and um, 8K 
display support <laughs> is on there, as is right. VRR, as is uh, TBC, which says, you know, to be confirmed, <laughs> which could mean anything, right? That's what it says. But, you yes. know, 8K is on the box. They have said it's going to support 8K. So, you know, it will happen, but it's, it's not going to be... Very few games are going to be native 8K, and I guess we'll have to see what happens there. Yeah. Any more points on that one? Not for me. No? Good. Okay. Um, yeah, Cliptacular here. Interesting question. With regards to games like Control Ultimate Edition, what's everyone's preferred mode to play on console? 60 frames per second or raid facing mode? It's uh, got to be 60 frames per second. I, yeah, I, I'm quickly tired of the. I, I mean, ray tracing is lovely and all that, and Alex might kill me for this, but I, I just, <laughs> I just, uh, after spending so long with that game, I thought I can't play it at 30 anymore. It's 60 all the way. That's a, that's a tricky. That's a tricky one because uh, I had played through the game on my PC with ray tracing at 60 frames per second already, so it's kind of like giving one of those up on the console side. But for me personally, when I spent time with uh, the console version, I did play in ray tracing mode because uh, I really just wanted to explore and see how those consoles delivered uh, such an ambitious ray tracing implementation and also see for myself how it compares to the PC version. So that's what I went with for that one. Yeah, I went 50-50, but I played quite a bit of it on Series S because I did the captures for the the performance review there. So I was mostly on 60 FPS mode by default. But, you know, I do think that um, based on the results we saw from the photo mode, which unlocks the frame rate, I still think the option is there for, you know, a lower resolution that does have ray tracing and target 60 frames per second. And we have a precedent here with uh, Spider-Man Remastered and Miles Morales. And if we're talking about that game... I'm going to be playing uh, the 60 FPS mode with ray tracing enabled. Yes, which kind of 100%. which kind of answers that question for me on a more hypothetical scale. I'm pretty much like Tom in the sense that, like, after a few minutes, it kind of just wears off on me, and I go back to 60 frames per second just for the general experience. So uh, it's nice to look at pretty things, but eventually, I just kind of stop noticing, which is probably says more about me than the games uh speaking of you <laughs> Audi, um the next the next what? question could actually be right up your alley it's from gabe and he says if you guys could bring back any cancelled game what would it be now you're the historian amongst us here there must be a whole host okay so there's only there's two answers that count here <laughs> So the first one is obviously the one that we're all thinking about. Thunder in Paradise on Super Nintendo. Of course. That should never have been cancelled, and uh, it's a damn shame. <laughs> uh, but the other answer, I think that like the most sad cancellation must be Mega Man Legends 3. You know, that was... They oh. brought it out. You know, they even put that beta out, and there was so much hype, and I think at least me and John will agree that Mega Man Legends is a great series, mm-hmm. uh, including Misadventures of Trombon. And then, you know, they just pulled the rug on that game, and we never saw it again. So if I have to bring back any game, it would have to be Mega Man Legends 3. Maybe not even the same fashion that they showed it off in, but just to bring Mega Man Legends back. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's a really good answer. The two that I might add to that for myself if I can also present to 
First, I would have loved to have seen Outcast 2 for the PlayStation 2. Because the original Outcast for PC was one of uh, my favorite games on the PC platform at the time. Just an awesome sort of adventure experience that used a voxel terrain. And they first showed that off the sequel on PlayStation 2, and all those initial shots looked amazing, I thought. Uh, and I was I remember being super hyped for that game, and then it just uh, didn't work out. So that's a shame. I would have loved to have seen that. And then I guess the other one that sticks out is uh, the canceled version of Prey 2. Right. And now we obviously got an mm. amazing game with the Prey name that probably wasn't even intended to be Prey in the first place. <laughs> but the Prey 2 that was presented... Uh, that original demo looks shockingly great and really interesting. And I'm really sad that we never got to see that go anywhere. So those are kind of my picks. Uh, my pick would be uh, Crackdown 3. <laughs> it wasn't cancelled, but the original, oh my word. the original version of the game was. Uh, yeah, and there is still some footage, uh, courtesy of IGN, that looks pretty good. And um, I'm sure there are many good reasons as to why it was cancelled. But the stuff that we saw there was looking just totally spectacular and totally unlike the final game. What I will say is the final game, the campaign section, I thought, you know, wasn't all it could have been. But I still think Sumo did a pretty good job there. But yeah, I like it. Yeah, it was never, you know, this was going to be the game that vindicated the cloud. And uh, it just didn't happen. So I think that's a shame because it just looks tremendous. Hmm. Absolutely. I'm none. No games really come to the top of my head, but uh, one that does stick out. Well, shocked me at the time was uh, the cancellation of was it Scalebound? Um, oh, Scale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was oh, like, yeah. I was thinking, man, that. I I was really hoping to have um, you know an RPG of that level on Xbox, and then it just disappeared, fizzled, you know, in my hands, and I was like, ah. And it came off the back of a couple of um, sort of delays and I think cancellations on Xbox side, which I thought was a bit of a shame. But yeah, that's that's uh, that's the main one for me. I got very lucky with that game because at the time I was working in Germany for a certain company that was handling a lot of the audio for that specific game. So I got ah. to see quite a bit of it. Uh, I was never instilled with a lot of confidence in the end of what I saw, which... You know, I don't know if I can speak too much about. I think these people are still alive and <laughs> can uh, hunt me down. But uh, I did get to see a lot of it, and over time, I kind of saw the reasons why it probably didn't come out. Hmm. But uh, you're totally right that, you know, based on what it was supposed to be, it was something that would have been really cool to have yeah. out on the market. I yeah. I got to see. Uh, I was in a demo with uh, Kamiya himself. Uh, no, like no. a nice 30, 40 minute presentation them playing the game on a pc and i thought it looked pretty interesting still but you could see some some areas where they, they might get into trouble so i don't know i mean i, I think the concept yeah. is really cool but clearly there was development issues which is probably the case with all of the games we've mentioned actually so <laughs> i remember i remember kami uh one of the few times i met him was due to this and i remember that one thing he said about Scalebound was that he wanted to challenge the esrb on how many curse words he can get into the script oh, which no. i thought was uh, quite the <laughs> quite the uh, statement to make but it's uh, perfectly Kamiya. i don't know if you, that's a competition um, you really want to win <laughs> no 
One last note on cancel games. We can talk about it. I could at least talk about this for hours. I love canceled uh, games in the sense of <laughs> discussing them at least. Uh, but uh, there was, uh, speaking of Final Fight earlier, uh, right before they did Streetwise, there was a plan to do a cel-shaded Final Fight with art from Akihan, who was oh, the original designer. That's right. And uh, you can see that in our Final Fight uh, yep. video on mm -hmm. DF Retro. Uh, we dug up some footage of that, and it looked pretty cool. It looked like a Gekido on PlayStation, if mm -hmm. you remember that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that, I thought it was a shame that never came out, because as we mentioned earlier in the episode, Final Fight kind of should come back. It's still one of Capcom's great legacy titles. Yeah. And it just never survived any of those sequels from 2 to Streetwise. I don't yeah. think any of them holds up. So, uh, Audi, while you're speaking, while your mouth is open and uh, uh, sound <laughs> is emerging from it, maybe you can handle the next question for us. All right. I'm um, disappointed, Rich. I thought you would do a good job <laughs> on this uh, pronunciation. Okay. So, from the answer, uh, from the uh, user Flagstong Knopfsbuleran. Sorry, sorry uh, what was that? Probably Swedish. It is flagstong knopspoleraren. Sorry, one more time. <laughs> flagstong knopspoleraren, okay. Rich. And the question. Uh, do you want me to do that in Swedish too? Uh, let's see. When do you guys think AI will be used in games to make actual AI better and not just make oh. the game look prettier? So this is an interesting discussion that kind of opens a bag of worms on what, what you mean when you say AI better uh because one of the things i've kind of come to learn is that you know there's a difference between realistic ai and or like realistic behavior and behavior that's fun for a game if you were to simulate the way a human works for instance like let's say you had infinite resources to do that there, there's some interesting ideas you could do with that, but I think for a lot of game types, that would not actually be the most enjoyable thing you could do. Uh, it would just, especially with like in like the stealth genre, for instance, where you know when you're playing with the AI in like a Metal Gear game or something like that, you're you're literally playing with them, and that's part of the fun. You're playing with these different states that they have, and and it's engaging. You have the power in that relationship with that enemy. Uh, if they were a realistic human in terms of behavior, you basically couldn't do just about any of those things because the percep their perception is so much more acute. So it would kind of ruin the gameplay, I think, in a way. Because the fact is, you have a controller between you and the character you're controlling, which you wouldn't have in real life. Your perception is already reduced by playing the game. So if they were to behave like an actual human, but they were in that environment, uh, you would be at a huge disadvantage and it just wouldn't be a lot of fun, I think. So I think the focus should be more continuing to push AI to make it fun to play with. And I think there's definitely room room for improvement there. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, and maybe, maybe AI, as they're talking, could feed into that and they could make something that's more reactive and more fun for the player to engage with. There's definitely potential there, but I think it's a it's it's a pretty difficult problem to solve. And I but though I suspect due to the rise of AI and machine learning, there's probably a lot of R and D happening in the background on this topic right now. Uh, well you remember when like Fair came out, that was a big thing, right? 
Well, they flipped tables and they went under the tables and then they went back under the tables. Yeah, yeah. They, they did that. It was no, Halo. I think uh, was was the the king of like combat AI in a shooter, mm. and and that kind of got ruined with the rise of Call of Duty for single player shooters because everything just became like a pop up shots where enemies mm. just like appear small distant dots and they just pop up from behind cover and you shoot yeah. them. Whereas in Halo, there's like real um, movement strategy there, and the AI and the enemies kind of move around you as you move around and that it's a very active kind of game which is lost in a lot of those military shooters i think i think on a nuts and bolts level uh we need the baseline hardware specification of the of the consoles to actually have full throated machine learning support which isn't really the case in the here and now and it's the consoles that basically drive um the big innovations um certainly in terms of uh the scope of game design so yeah, I think that's kind of um, that's kind of all I've really got to say about that. Uh, should we move on to the next question, which is quite a, yes. a, a really nice one? Uh, it should be the last question, except I do think that Audi is trying to insert a comedy question at the end, based on. I, I'm right here. I've, you've been looking at me the whole time. Yeah, I'm look, also looking at the Google. Don't you implicate me? In I'm this. also looking at the Google Doc, which uh, which seems to have, to have your input slightly added since i last looked at it is it it signed by my is it signed by my name (laughs) yes effectively (laughs) anyway uh the question what is the earliest game you recall playing slash seeing that got you interested in video games or technology in the first place and show my age a bit here oh yeah this comes from mubar we should say yes yes show my age a bit here um It would be probably Space Invaders for me, which goes back to the 70s. But I think the game that really sort of excited me... um, uh, It was like tennis on the oscillator. (laughs) It was probably Donkey (laughs) Kong. uh, Donkey Kong Arcade, which really just looked utterly brilliant at the time. That's That's the game for me that's sort of embedded in my memory. But playing Space Invaders on the Atari VCS and in the arcade... That was also a game changer as well. Pac-Man as well. That was a, that was huge. But I think it was basically Donkey Kong and Space Invaders for me. So what about okay. you, John? Yeah, we'll go in descending order of age here, I guess. So I'll go next. <laughs> uh, the first one that I really remember myself probably is Atari for the Atari 2600. Um, sorry, sorry uh, Pitfall. Atari 4600. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Pitfall. What am I thinking? It's Pitfall. The first one I remember is Pitfall for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, uh, which I really remember it playing on a black and white TV sometime in the mid '80s, I think, something like that. Yeah, it's it's fuzzy, but that's that's the first one that comes to mind. But the first game that I guess made more of an impact on me, uh, it has to be Super Mario Brothers for the NES. Uh, I played that at a cousin's house, I think sometime when it was still really pretty new and i remember being kind of blown away by it just because you know just the idea of of the platform game which is something i still love today like just seeing that for the first time it was uh it was extremely compelling i thought and it made quite an impact of course nes games would evolve significantly from there but that was the one that really made an impact on me 
I don't know who's the next youngest. Yeah, who's the youngest here? Next well, uh, well, Tom is like 23, so uh, I think it should be Audie. No, <laughs> it, might be a, it might be a decade off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, yeah, I kind of have two answers here uh, because I have one game that kind of made me take note of video games and then another game that made me realize the technology behind it. But the game that made me you know, noticed video games and liked them was a game on Commodore 64 called Donald Duck's Playground, which was designed by Al Love, who also did the Leisure Suit Larry, uh, very similar to Donald Duck. <laughs> and uh, that was really fun for me just because I was a huge fan of Donald Duck, still am. And then here was a game where you could not only play as him, but do all these different activities. It was very much an educational game, but it was a fun educational game. And it was pretty instrumental in me learning English, actually, uh, that game. So I do credit that to kind of making me a video game fan person. So if if we were to connect some dots here, you wouldn't be here right now joining us on Digital Foundry if not for Al Lowe. I would not. Hmm. Uh, And I actually spoke to him a few years ago in regards to that Donald Duck article we discussed in the Quackshot video. And I did tell him that, and he was like, oh, that was part of my master plan, actually. I was going to conquer Norway by having you all play Donald Duck's Playground. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. He's a very nice man. Elbow. I can imagine. Uh, bef- uh, technology- before you go on, Aldi, if the second game is Bubsy the Bobcat, I'm calling the police. <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately, uh, that was the game that made me the man I am. <laughs> Oh. Uh, but uh, <laughs> in terms of really realizing game technology, uh, Another World on the Amiga oh. was the very first time that I, like, it was extremely impactful for me. And I've mentioned this in other videos. Like, that was the game that made me decide to become part of the video game industry, to want to design video games, make them. And uh, that was the very first time I can remember that I picked up like Amiga Power and those kinds of magazines to read about how this game was made because I was so perplexed by just the way it looked, the way it worked. And the fact that I saw the same game on the different consoles, where I, whereas I thought this only could be done on the Amiga, I started becoming very interested in how did they actually port this game with the polygonal uh, graphics and whatnot to Super Nintendo and Mega Drive and all this stuff. Uh, so that was the, the very first time that I became really interested in video game technology. Cool. Tom? Well, uh, I've got to go back to the Mega Drive, which was the console I had when I was, like, my first console, basically. And uh, the game there, really, for me, was... So uh, I got my start with PC gaming because that was the family PC, but then I got the Mega Drive as my own thing that I could play, you know, without disturbing the family. And... <laughs> The, the sort of challenge I set up for myself was, can I get a game on this console which could match what's going on on PC? Is there something this Mega Drive can do that my dad can't with his, uh, his you know, voodoo graphics card or whatever? Um, so, well, yeah, I've, I, there was loads. There's like, so many great games that did unique things like LHX, uh, Attack Chopper, you know, full 3D, uh, flat-shaded you know polygons there's nothing no textures at so all. wait 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 tom if this was if you were you were using the mega drive when the voodoo graphics was out so this so you were at, at you were playing this after the mega drive was already kind of like no longer like the thing on the market right i uh, might be because voodoo, voodoo graphics was 1990 was... was 1996 
six, so, seven, yeah, about then. So yeah. the Saturn and the PlayStation were already out. Yeah, I, I overlapped a little bit. I was uh, okay. about That's ninety. No, nothing. Yeah, about ninety-five to ninety-six. Okay. Yeah, cool. that makes sense. And yes, I mean LHX obviously was like it ran at four frames per second, but I was thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then there's other like really fascinating projects like uh, Sonic 3D Blast. Uh, with that, mm -hmm. you know, um, there's a really great YouTube breakdown of how this uh, came to be. But the intro uh, sort of cinematic, this animated cinematic, which they chopped the frames it's down full, to. It's full motion video on the Mega Drive. Yeah. yeah. It's impressive. They, they somehow did it and squeezed it into like kilobytes, basically, to, mm -hmm. to make it happen. But yeah, there's, there's um, so many great games on Mega Drive just like that, which got me really excited about the future and then obviously playstation came out and uh things kind of broke loose with and mario 64 and n64 of course which was the other big one cool. now i have a question for richard that goes uh into this actually was there a specific game that made you do digital foundry was did you play a game and realize that digital foundry should exist because of it or no <laughs> um, <laughs> no, not really. I mean, um, if we look at, uh, I mean, Digi Digital Foundry started in, this is probably worthy of a, a video or a Patreon video in its own right, but it started as a, a kind of production facility for digital assets for the games industry. So we did work for, uh, you know, Ubisoft, Microsoft, Sony, um, did some stuff for Nintendo, did some stuff for EGM, remember the magazine EGM? Um, mm -hmm. we did a whole bunch of stuff, but it was mostly about, uh, getting really good quality video assets from, um, uh, the consoles. And then we had this massive transition point at 2005, where the Xbox 360 came along and suddenly all of these video capture devices that we'd been using were no longer working anymore. You couldn't get 720p from them. You couldn't get 1080p from them. So, you know, there were no off-the-shelf solutions the way they are today. So we had to basically trawl the existing industries out there. We actually ended up coming up with a capture solution that started from the medical imaging sector. Oh. The, 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 the card we used cost $3,000, and it could do 1080p, but about 15 frames per second. But this was like 2004 this card came out. But, you know, it was all about imaging at that point, Digital Foundry. And then the platform comparisons came when I wanted to get back into editorial. But, yeah, there wasn't really a game that kind of shaped Digital Foundry as it is today. More this transition into high definition and actually being able to capture 720p at 60 frames per second, which was impossible uh, sort of on most hardware that was available sort of mid 2005 and there were devices that could do 720p but they would actually downscale um to like 960 by 720 uh which oh. and then they'd use anamorphic pixels to get up to 1280 and it, it isn't 720p really mm -hmm. so nope. yeah this was where we went on this well i went on this fantastic voyage into figuring out how we can actually acquire 720p and 1080p imagery. And that's kind of where Digital Foundry started. And I do remember sometime, I think it was the first time video we did at 720p was basically we put together a trailer for Half-Life 2 from a PC graphics card outputting DVI or VGA. 
And then I think um, three months before Xbox 360 came out, I actually managed to acquire a loan of an Xbox 360 development kit to actually test that the Ooh. card that we'd chosen would actually acquire video from uh, an Xbox 360, which was, you know, where we were targeting it. And then- and That would have been analog video Yes, too, it would have because... been VGA. We, we wanted yeah. to do component, uh, but it actually turned out that VGA, we got a better output from it. Uh, certainly a better suit for that card. And then there was the whole year of waiting to see whether this card would actually work on PlayStation 3. And um, so I do remember, you know, hoiking this massive tower PC to the UK developer that had PS3 test kits, just plugging it in to see whether we would actually get a picture. And uh, because the card supported DVI and because the PS3 supported HDMI, then yes, we got a picture and it was... Well, that would have been in the dev kit because once you got the actual retail unit, then you had to worry about HDCP. Yes. Which is locked on that's that right. Thing. Yeah. I mean, it would have. It, I tested it on a, a test kit, which was a PS3 form factor. And right. you, you had an option within the debug menus to turn off HDCP. Um, but you couldn't do that on the retail units. However, by that point, HDCP had been... Um, comprehensively cracked (laughs) by the time the ps3 came out so you know that wasn't really a problem that's how we could do the platform comparisons of course the funny thing is we started those in 2007 i think and we couldn't really um do proper like for like until the xbox 360 gained an hdmi port um which uh which helped a great deal but i think that's the final question john and uh, <laughs> Audi here is tapping like a maniac in, in order to try and get a... <laughs> I haven't tapped anything. Get, get a comedy question in before the end. Well, you know, the question here from uh, the inimitable Bob Dutch. Uh, last week, it, it, it was, uh, what is the best Bubsy game? There isn't. <laughs> well, that was a re- that was a good question. I enjoy that. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, this one. Do you prefer Toki or Clax? <laughs> Which one do you prefer? Um, I don't know. Even answer quickly. I could I could answer this quickly, really easily. It's going to be Clax because I know you hate it. I know you despise it with an absolute vengeance, and I actually think it's a fairly reasonable puzzle game. So uh, <laughs> that's my final answer. All right. I'll never be back. <laughs> All right. With that important question out of the way, uh, I think that's going to do it for this week's show. So uh, thanks to you guys for joining me on this uh, journey of madness. No problem. Is the new title for the show? the new title. It's the Digital Foundry Journey of Madness. So we've, we've made it all the way to the end. Um, but yeah, if you guys enjoyed this, definitely let us know. Be sure to check out our Patreon uh, we'll be accepting questions from patrons. Uh, we're going to be looking at new ways to do that so that it's a little bit you know, easier for everybody to to get those questions in because it is fun to talk about those, I think. Uh, but yeah, so if you enjoyed this, though, you know, like, subscribe, follow us uh, on Twitter, um, all that good stuff. And until next time or next week, uh, this is the DF Crew signing off. Uh-huh.